for you have no delight in sacrifice. If I, would, if I were to give you a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of, of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Luke 18, beginning to read at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's start in prayer. We pray from lines in Psalm 51 this morning. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. For I know my transgressions, and against you only have I sinned. You desire truth in our inward beings. Create in us a clean heart, a new spirit, and restore us to the joy of your salvation. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning we start our first of our psalms coming into Lent and we start with maybe one of the most famous of the penitential psalms. Psalm 51 is the fourth of the penitential psalms. It plums the depths of the human spirit, human psyche, human condition. Uh, if I think about this psalm, I always um, go back to a piece of music. It's sort of my way being, but um, if you want to listen to something this week, um, Allegri's Miserere is probably the most famous setting. It's in Latin, so if you have the English with you, it makes it make a lot more sense. Um, but that was a secret piece of music. I don't know if you know the, the history of it. It's very famous now. But when it was written, it was actually written almost as a secret piece. It could only be played in the Vatican. It could only be played in most sacred and special moments. Uh, Allegri, who wrote it, didn't write it for public settings. He set it for those intimate moments. It was only when Mozart went along, listened to it, and thought that was rather good, and he had such a good ear to listen to it once. And it was um, well known ever after from that moment. Uh, it's actually slightly different. It's interesting, we've now recently reconstructed the original, uh, and it's fun to listen to, to both of them if uh, you like those sorts of things. The psalm itself is probably the, the most developed, I think, of those 
psalms of penitence. It's honest. It's questioning. How can there ever be forgiveness? How can I escape from the things that constantly want to drag me down? Depending on our outlook on life, maybe we feel like that a lot of the time. We feel dogged by our past experiences. Alternative, you might be someone who is generally optimistic. You feel free from those condemning voices, and it's only when you feel like you've really messed up, then you are confronted by those same voices. But either way, the reality is the same. At some point or other, we delve into the depths of our own darkness, of our own humanity, needing the hand of God to draw us up. Now this psalm titles that it is of David's repentance for adultery with Bathsheba. And though that in its title says it's very specific, in what is written about it, it seems much more general than that. There is nothing really writing in the writing itself that implies that it is only for that moment. If anything, it was written in a very different way. It's written in a way that all of us can see ourselves in it. It is clear that David isn't just talking about one moment, one moment that he knows he has absolutely let himself down in front of God. In fact, the whole psalm seems to reflect his whole condition. So the psalm has four distinct sections to it, and we'll go through them. They are the appeal to God, firstly. Secondly, the confession to God. Thirdly, the restoration by God. And fourthly, the renewal by God. So appeal, confession, restoration, and renewal. So let's look at them. Feel free to have it open, page 531 of the Old Testament section in Psalm 51. The appeal to God, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The psalm starts by asking for mercy. And actually not any old form of mercy. This is the sort of mercy that you know that you don't deserve. That you feel like you shouldn't even be asking for. This is sort of pushing your luck even for asking for it. It's interesting. I don't know if you often feel that. I think sometimes in sort of the humdrum of today's life, we can feel far from that moment. But I was thinking back to other moments in Scripture, and I was reminded of the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus talks about. The son goes off, spends all his inheritance, and only out of desperation comes back to the father in the hope of being made a slave. He says, Father, I am no more I am no more worthy to be called your son. In the depths of his sorrow, he knows that he hasn't even got the right to ask for anything. And it's this moment, I think, that is so transformative for that parable. It's only at that lowest ebb, that moment when he realizes he has nothing, nothing to offer, nothing, no right to even ask for anything that is the transformative moment for him. 
And I think that was actually the same for David in Psalm 51. When we come to God in full realization of that unequal nature to our relationship with God, then we see the starkest contrast between us and God. We see our absolute need for him. And then our desire for him to rectify things. The second reading we had with the Pharisee and the tax collector. I think the the greatest shame that we see of the Pharisee is that he doesn't see what he needs. He doesn't see how great God is. He sees that he's sort of doing okay. At least I'm not as bad as him. I'm doing all right. I'm doing these things this time, this many times, this often. I'm sort of doing all right. He doesn't see his need to call out to God. The psalm uses the image of a dirty garment. And it's like that sort of really bad stain that you say, get on a brand new t-shirt. There's nothing worse than, you know, the first stain on a new thing. Isn't it the absolute worst? A really bad one. Let's imagine you get turmeric or something on a white t-shirt, a white pair of trousers. It's funny, you might wash it and wash it and wash it, and maybe you think you get away with it and you can probably wear it out, but the most annoying thing is you know it is always there and it will always bug you. It's that level of frustration. It's that level of knowing I will never be able to change this. Here the call is to be thoroughly cleansed, not to have a quick wash to get the worst of it off. This is, how do I get this garment back to the way it was when I bought it, when I was so excited to bring it home and to wear it for the first time? So that is the appeal to God. Secondly, our confession, verses 4 and 5 are his confession. Strangely, he says, against you only, God, have I sinned, which doesn't seem to match up to what we know of the title um, of his sin to Bathsheba. But I think what he's talking about is he's saying, I have marred the image of God in me. I have sinned because I had something of the divine, something of the holy in me, and I have marred that marred the spotless garment that I was given. He says, Lord God, you are justified in your sentence of me. He realizes that actually it's not about one moment in his life. He realizes that it's part of his very being. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. And here's the rub, because he knows the gap between him and God. It's always been there, and it's only highlighted by the worst decisions that he decides for himself. But actually, it's always been there. Most of the time, probably I imagine most of us would say, I'm generally a good person, right? I'm a sort of okay person. I I do good decisions. I do good things most of the time. But... 
mostly good. Most of the time. Actually, it's always a very slipping off the scale. Because good isn't uh, there and thereabout. I remember when I was young, I um, was a junior student at Royal College of Music, and I was in a string quartet. And the tutor had very exacting standards. And he turned to one of the players, it wasn't me this particular time, and he said to them, play in tune. And, you know, us being teenagers always had a comment. And the comment that came back to him was, it was nearly in tune. To which he replied, there is no such thing as nearly in tune. It's either in tune or it isn't. And that's always stuck with me. I hope the sort of analogy works. Good doesn't have almost good. Good doesn't have good sort of the time or generally good. The moments that we feel like we've let ourselves down most actually always actually only highlight what is always there. And so, you know, we had confession at the beginning of our service, and it's not there because we assume that we've, you know, royally messed up every single week, but it's actually because the human condition is always the same, and it's only highlighted by the moments when we feel we have most let ourselves down. It's not there just in case one of you has done something that is sort of one of the worst things of your life, and it's lucky we had a confession. We always need to come to God, however we feel, because mostly good is not good at all. Thirdly, we've had our appeal, we've had our confession, and now we come to our third uh, section, which is restoration, verses 6 to 9 says, you desire truth from my inward being. Teach me your wisdom. There is the offer of cleansing. The reference to hyssop here is actually to the book of Numbers. And it's to do with how you restore someone after they've prepared a family member after burial. He feels like death is clinging to him through his actions. Hyssop was used to cleanse them on the third and the seventh day after preparing a body for burial. It was the ritual cleaning again. How do I reinstate myself? How do I come back into the presence of God? How am I able to enter back into that state when I can worship God again? There's also that desire for joy and for gladness as well. This is important because we should always want to come back into that sense of joy and gladness. It's not about staying at that bottom ebb. We should always desire to raise our heads again. I know we're coming into the beginning of Lent, and Lent can sometimes feel heavy, but Lent is defined. It has a set length of time. And at the end... Lent is defined by Easter. Easter is coming up for air again, coming up to joy, the joy of the resurrection. The Christian faith is not meant to be about doom and gloom all the time, but there must be moments that we can raise our face to heaven. 
Finally, uh, after having appeal, our confession, our restoration, we end with our fourth section, that of inward renewal. Finally, the psalmist asks for the impossible, and so should we. He asks for a miracle. Create in me a clean heart. This is the thing, that if you don't believe in a creator, you'd say, what was the point? I don't need that. Or if you think there is a creator, but maybe they're far off, you might say, surely that was impossible. But if there is a creator, and you think that they're not, as Christians, we know the lengths that God has come to love us. In, we know it in the person of Jesus, in his life in his death and in his resurrection from the dead. And that was the core of that song, that wonderful song, Purify My Heart. Come close to me, transform my heart. We know a God who can do miracles, who sent his son, who loves us beyond all that we could imagine. But it's only when we know that goodness for our lives and that we know that transformation, it's needed, that it's possible, and that actually it's longed for by our Creator. God longs for us to come back to him. That is the whole point of that parable of the prodigal son. What about this from Romans 5? For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, Indeed, rarely anyone would die for a righteous person, though perhaps maybe for a good person some might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It articulates that truth that we see in Psalm 51, that through our appeal to God, through our confession to God, through his restoration of us, and through that inward renewal of our spirits, that we can go from being far off from God and into his loving arms. It is needed, it is possible, and it is exactly what God wants for our lives. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your forgiveness. We are sorry for all those times when we haven't believed it's necessary to come to you. We're sorry when bad things in our lives seem too bad for your forgiveness. We ask that you'd help us to cry out to you, confess our darkness to you, and pray that you would always draw close to us, that you would always restore us, and that you would always renew us by your Holy Spirit. For we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.